Welcome to the Train ATX podcast. I'm your host, Kelly, alongside my co-host, Nico. Train ATX is here to provide the Austin community exposure into professional training experiences. We are super excited to bring the community a front row seat into the minds of some of the most influential athletes, coaches, and trainers here in Texas. And today we are super pumped to have soccer and performance coach, owner and founder of Animo Performance, Coach Nano. Thank you for joining us here today. Um, Super excited about our conversation. And uh, we'll just, we'll kick things off. I mean, your Instagram, which is how Nico and I found you, was just like inspiring. And we've been wanting to interview a psychologist forever. Um, So we were super excited to find you. But just to kick things off, walk us through how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, thanks so much for for having me on. Um, excited to to talk with you guys too and share some of what I know um, and also hear what you guys know about the Austin soccer scene because I'm actually pretty new here in Austin. Um, so what what brought me here, um, man? Um, depends how much time we have. I could tell you uh, the whole story, but. Um, basically I grew up, uh, playing soccer, soccer was in the blood. My dad's Brazilian. So, um, grew up with the ball at the feet, um, and played all throughout my childhood. Um, after high school, went on to play college division three, um, soccer in, uh, New York, Vassar college is where I played. And then, um, after that, um, continued to follow the dream and, um, played a little bit semi-professionally and professionally both in the U S and abroad. Um, and then, you know, all throughout, um, stayed involved in the game in various different ways. One of them being coaching, um, and knew that I wanted to, to stay involved in soccer, um, pretty much for the rest of my life. I, I love the sport. It's given me everything that I have today. And, um, and I knew that I had, a a, a place to contribute, um, to the soccer scene here in this country as well, because I know that this country is still, um, developing so much in its soccer culture and soccer identity. Um, and in particular a place like, like Austin, I think is, is booming right now. Um, so I, I stayed in the game. I, I kept coaching and then pursued, a, um, a master's degree in sports psychology. Um, and so, um, yeah, I skipped a few, uh, steps in the story there, but, um, yeah, fast forward a few years now, I'm, uh, coaching, um, coaching a college team right now. Um, and then also, um, helping out as much as I can, um, to, to guide and mentor players to, to get to where they want to go, whether that's college or professional or whatever that may be, um, you know, helping players get to that level, um, through some private training, through some sports psychology work. Um, and, and if not through myself, definitely referring them to friends of mine who can give them other, um, you know, specialist outlooks on the game and, and guide them to where they want to go. Yeah, that's awesome. What, um, the one thing that you said, you know, what made you want to stay around the game of soccer, even after your professional career was over? Yeah. Um, great question. I, uh, I, I just, I identify so much as, as an athlete and, and as a soccer player, it's always been, um, part of my being, um, growing up, both my parents were in, um, sports. Uh, my dad, um, teaches a Brazilian martial art called capoeira. Um, so very active lifestyle. Um, and then also my, my mother was a, a 
fitness director and personal trainer. And so I was always kind of involved in, in sports and they were both also leaders and teachers. And, um, and so I, I got a unique perspective on that kind of stuff. Um, so I feel like it was always a little bit ingrained in me. And then I just found my own, you know, my own place in soccer, um, a little bit different than both my parents' backgrounds, but still similar related, um, something that, um, was also, I think, um, easy for me to connect with my Brazilian roots, which is something that, um, you know, maybe I, through my childhood kind of, uh, you know, is this thing where, okay, uh, my family in Brazil loves soccer. They're passionate about soccer, but in this country, um, you know, my, my friends weren't as passionate. They were more into baseball and basketball. And, um, so for me, that kind of was unique for me and, mm-hmm. and set me apart and was different and gave me an identity. Um, and I think that's what, what ultimately ended up, um, making me want to stay in the game is just years of, of kind of developing that passion for the game. Yeah. That's wow. That's super intriguing. <laughs> yeah. You, you touched on something really interesting and that's your exposure to martial arts growing up. Mm-hmm. How impactful was that on you as far as like mindset and how it translates over to the soccer world? What are some things that you could take from martial arts and translate it over into soccer? Cause some of the best athletes in the world, you think of like uh, Zlatan, right? Yeah. Who's a, a, a black belt martial artist and what his mindset is and how it translates into the game. What are some things that, that you could probably pick up on um, if I were to start training in martial arts? Yeah. Um, great, great question. Um, and, and something that I think, um, should, should be explored more. Um, I think the mind body connection is, is huge, right? And any martial arts, um, you know, and you could even include in, in martial arts, you could also say dance, yoga, things like that. Those, those are, um, uh, uh arts that, that, um, create this mind body connection where you're, you're moving, but you're moving intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so developing that sort of body understanding at a young age is really important. I think getting coordination, basic coordination, um, feeling comfortable in your movement, comfortable in your body. Um, I think all of those things, um, end up creating healthier human beings, regardless if they go on to play sport at a high level or whatever. I think it's essential to, to young people's development is, is having something like that. Um, the other thing that I would, I would say about martial arts is like discipline. Um, you have to be disciplined in martial arts, especially like in Capoeira, you're, you're quote unquote fighting against one other person. And so you, you have to be disciplined. If you're throwing kicks and moves all over the place, the other person's going to take advantage of that and take you down somehow. So you have to also be disciplined, um, in, in everything that you do. Um, not just from, from the instructor telling you what to do or, you know, that type of discipline, that is one type of discipline, but also discipline in your decision-making, because if you make a wrong decision, you'll get punished. Um, and, and having that mindset, I mean, the same thing is true in soccer, I think, right. You, you have to, you have to have that mindset all the time. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, you skipped a few chapters in your story leading you up to getting your master's in psychology what ultimately led you to, you know, obviously you wanted to stay around the game, but what led you to that decision to pursue a degree in psychology? Yeah. Um, I always had an interest in psychology. I, um, 
so my, my mom uh, majored in psychology in college. Um, and I used to, you know, find her, some of the comments that she would make about psychology interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, that was at a young age. Um, later on, I took a psychology class in high school, enjoyed it, went to college. In my first year or two of college, took a million different classes in different disciplines because I always knew like psychology is interesting, but I figured, let me see what else is out there. I took everything, ended up falling back on psychology because I really liked it. My college coach, who was, um, you know, probably the best coach I've ever had, um, had a a doctorate in sports psychology. And and he used to talk about psychology all the time. You know, his pregame speeches, um, it was all about mental preparation and and getting yourself um, in the zone um, and um, and all the different things that he would do to prepare us. Um, and then, uh, you know, when you win a championship, uh, you have a special feeling and you realize that, Hey, those things work. And so I, you know, I was young at the time and, um, thought, you know, one day I want to go deeper into this when, when I'm not playing anymore, I'm going to go deeper into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I took a few years between college and, and then going on to get my master's cause I actually, you know, tried to keep playing as long mm-hmm. as I could. Um, and then at some point I just said, man, I, I, I'm dying to learn more. I have to go back to school for this. Yeah. So tell us what, what are some things that your coach would tell you to do to help prep for a game? What are some of those, uh, things that you would do to kind of like get yourself in the zone? Like what did he teach you that made him the best coach? Yeah. Um, I think there, there's, there were a variety of things that he did, um, that, that really helped us. Um, things as simple as, as creating, you know, uh, routines for us, you know, warm up routines, um, so that we were doing the same thing before the game, every game. Um, and, and maybe that's commonplace. Maybe lots of teams do that, but many times people don't know why we do that. And so everything that he did was really intentional. And so at the beginning of the year, we spent a a part of a training session as a team deciding how we were going to warm up as a team. And so it was inclusive. Everyone was in on the decision-making. Um, and then when we set up that warm up, everyone's bought in because we've decided this is what we're going to do to get warmed up. And so we know now when we do this warm up, like by the end of this warm up, you have to be flying, you have to be ready to go. Yeah. Um, so little things like that. Um, and, and throughout all of his coaching was present. Right. Just that awareness, the greater awareness of um, the psychological part of the game. The other thing that he used to always tell us, especially when we would play um, lesser opponents. Right. We would schedule, you know, our league was pretty strong. But in preseason, you know, in the first in the first non-league games of the season, we would maybe set up some games against, you know, opponents that weren't traditionally as strong as we were. Mm -hmm. And he would come to us before the game and he would say, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you that this team is better than you. They're not, you know, you should beat them, but you guys have to get yourselves going. There's nothing that I can say as a coach to turn you on mentally. That's your job as a player. You have to know what gets you going, whether that's closing your eyes and visualizing something, right? For some players, it could be closing their eyes and visualizing something calm, a beach to calm nerves Mm -hmm. that might get them ready to play. For someone else, it might be closing their eyes and visualizing violence or something that gets them fired up. Different people need different things, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But it's up to each individual to do that for themselves. 
And yeah, we can team up, we can work with each other and say, hey, give me a little slap on the back of the neck because that's going to get me going. Pour some cold water on my head because that's going to get me going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can help each other out. But at the end of the day, like it's up to each individual to get themselves prepped for the game. So quick question on that. Let's say we have our consistent warmups, right? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of going through those motions. Now I need to kind of close my eyes and get ready for the game. And let's say... Um, I'm visualizing a beach, right? Mm -hmm. Are you saying that from a psychological standpoint, I need to hit those same routines and think about the same things before every single game consistently so that it can start to trigger the same movements, the same kind of rhythm that you would get into in a game? Yeah, consistency helps a lot. Consistency in in your behaviors, in your routines, in your preparation really helps. Um, however, I won't say that doing the same thing every time works. Why? Because mm -hmm. the situation and the environment always changes as well. So your opponent's going to change. The conditions of the game are going to change. It might be sunny. It might be rainy, hot, cold. It might, you know, the opponent might be, um, might play a specific way. Maybe it, you know, um, between two opponents who are similar levels in the league, right? Similar results. One plays a specific style. Another one plays a specific style. So against one, you have to be a little bit more physical. Uh, against another one, you have to be a little bit more tactical. So the, the demands of each situation are going to always change. Maybe there's a big crowd or a small crowd. All of these different factors may influence performance. So consistency definitely helps. But I won't say that there's like a cookie cutter, hey, this works every single time. No, it might change. It might morph throughout your career, throughout your season even. You, you might have to tweak a few little things to make sure that you're getting the, the best out of yourself. To tag on to Nico's question, I had one that came up while y'all were talking. With your clients specifically, with imagery and visualization, visualization how, like, can you give us a couple of examples of how, like, you say you have the client that might need to be like thinking of something violent, whereas you need one client thinking of something, you know, serene and like a beach. How do you kind of prepare those different clients? And again, with the ever-changing environments that they're going to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So um, I tried to give like two very opposite examples, right? The, the, the beach and, and right. The violent It's like, very, right. But um, there could be a, a whole spectrum of different ways that someone could prepare. And I think one of the best ways um, to, to work with an athlete is to sit down with them away from the field, away from those sorts of things, have a conversation about what motivates them, what block, what performance blocks do they feel like they have? Mm -hmm. um, what are some things that they feel are important for their preparation? And that's a whole, you know, a whole conversation in itself to figure out, you know, it's, that's athlete profiling to figure out what kind of profile this person has. And then can we tailor a program that's going to be helpful for them? Um, and then it's about practicing that program to get some sort of consistency over time. So I would, I would tell an athlete they need to practice a visualization at least five to 10 times before they think about doing it before a game. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple easy ways you can do that. Before you go train, you can do it. Yeah. And you can see, did it work or did it not work? Was that visualization helpful for me? 
And if it wasn't helpful for me, how can I change it to make it helpful for me? Why wasn't it helpful for me? Mm -hmm. That sort of reflection process is really important. And that's where I think working with a specialist can be really huge because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially as a young athlete, you can know about yourself, but it's really difficult to like really fully understand yourself. Mm -hmm. It's much easier when you talk to somebody who's thought and studied the game for so long, right? And they can help guide you to the right answers. 100%. Yeah. When, when, you know, you're dealing with a young kid that's like, is experiencing these thoughts and feelings and is like, nothing's working, but if they can communicate it to, you know, an expert like yourself, then you're like, well, this means this, and this is how we can kind of cope and deal and get you to like your best self. Um, That's really, that's really interesting. What's a common thread that you see and the clients that you work with more on the psychology front? Yeah, I, I've encountered a lot of people who experience anxiety, anxiety about, about performance and anxiety about competition, mm-hmm. um, anxiety about social interaction with their coach or with their teammates. But anxiety is, is prevalent everywhere. It exists, you know, um, in, in every aspect of life, not just in sport, but Um, Sport is one where it comes out because we're being asked to do specific things and then the demands are really high, especially at the highest levels of sport. We're challenging ourselves to 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 be our best. Um, And so that also comes with pressure. Right. And so pressure then creates stress and anxiety. And so when we're uncertain about what's going to happen in the future, we're anxious. Right. Um, and when we're, um, a little bit insecure about what's happened in the past, maybe last game, I made a mistake and now next game I'm anxious. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think anxiety is everywhere. Um, the, I think the, the solution to it is, is, um, more broadly educating people about ways to manage anxiety because Mm anxiety is not going to go away. Mm -hmm. I've, I've studied sports psychology. I've talked about it forever. I've learned all these techniques to deal with it, but it doesn't go away. It doesn't cease to exist. I still have anxiety. I just have better tools to deal with it. And even then I'm not always the best at dealing with it because every new situation is different. And Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes I haven't encountered something before. Sometimes I'm depleted on my resources because I didn't sleep well the night before. And that makes you less prepared to be able to retrieve those resources that you have to deal with the anxiety. Um, so every day is a new challenge. It's just about, um, you know, I always use um, the the analogy of a toolbox, right? I tell athletes, like, you have this toolbox. You have lots of different tools to deal with your problems, your issues as an athlete. Um, And my job as a sports psychologist is going to be to work with you to increase the number of tools that you have Mm -hmm. to be able to use. That doesn't mean that this tool is always going to serve. You might need to pull out different tools at different times. Um, And it's it's not an easy, um, there's no easy solution to that kind of stuff. What are a couple of ways that you've you know, suggested to your clients to cope with anxiety? Or like, let's say, you know, you're working with them days leading up to a game or something or an opponent that they haven't faced before, what are some ways that you've told them, hey, like these are the things you need to do to set yourself up for success? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I gave the example earlier of imagery, of Mm -hmm. visualizations, right? Um, Another technique that I would um, encourage them to use is like deep mindful breathing. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and play play around with um, what what your breath can do for you. Um, we're breathing all the time. <laughs> we don't stop breathing. Yeah. Right? It's the it's the only thing that we're doing all the time, <laughs> consciously. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your heart's beating, but you can't necessarily control that in the same way. But if you control your breath, your heart rate might actually change. So if you're nervous, and your heart's beating really fast, and you start taking longer, slower, deeper breaths, it might start to slow down and calm down. Right. Um, self-talk is another, so coming up with keywords, um, you know, affirmations, um, different ways of, um, talking to yourself, even just changing the relationship of how you talk to, to yourself. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's intentional self-talk where we, we teach specific cues that are going to, you know, help, um, help you prepare for performance. Um, or it could be in the middle of a performance, you know, using a specific yeah. word to get you back focused on the right things. Mm -hmm. But then there's also spontaneous self-talk that, hey, I made a mistake. Crap. Well, let's let's start talking to ourselves differently. Let's let's mm -hmm. change the way, you know, instead of cursing at ourselves, let's say, hey, next one, next play, focus on the next ball, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, we're, we're pressing when, you know, when they, when the goalkeeper plays out, we're pressing. Now I'm focused on the next play rather than the mistake that I just made. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so some, you know, self-talk cues could be really helpful. Um, so what did I say? Visualization, breathing, self-talk. Those are a couple of the tools that we use. Yeah. 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 Uh, if you ever, for, for a lot of the, the people kind of watching this right now, um, especially the younger kids out there, one of the things that you had mentioned is taking those deep breaths. Mm -hmm. And it's such a subtle piece that is overlooked. Like if you go watch Cristiano Ronaldo take a free kick, he takes these massive deep breaths before mm -hmm. he takes a free kick. And I think that it helps him put him in that that mental aspect of lowering his heart rate. He knows it's a big moment but he has to figure out how to kind of manage mm -hmm. that situation because he's constantly in those big moments, right? Mm -hmm. And if you go watch a lot of those replays, he does take those big deep breaths um, and he puts himself in that focus. So yeah, super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I would say his free kick, it's a routine, right? It's his free yep. kick routine where he sets the ball down a specific way. He takes his steps back. He, he widens his stance takes a big deep breath. That's all part of his routine to get locked in for what he's about to do. And he's done that over and over and over for years. And he's really good at what he does, right? right. So no one's going to question how <laughs> how effective that routine is. But uh, it makes me think of the World Cup, you know, all the penalty kicks, watching the players in the penalty kick shootout go through their routines. And you could see some of them were more confident in their routines than others, just purely based on their body language. You yeah. can see like, this guy's done it so many times before. Um, and uh, and so then to, to, to flip it a little bit, right? You've got the player who's taking the penalty kick going through his routine, and then you've got the goalkeeper maybe trying to distract him from the routine. So Emmy Martinez, right, d did mm -hmm. classic yeah. like threw the ball away and like did whatever. Well, that, that's that's designed to actually throw a player off of their routine, distract mm -hmm. them from what they really want to achieve, which is to score that goal. Um, and uh, Emmy Martinez was was successful in his <laughs> efforts this time. Uh. As I um, was researching you and your company and preparing for this interview, I, I took to your website, mm -hmm. and you mentioned on there that you seek to remove develop, developmental barriers and performance blocks. What are some of the performance blocks that you see with your current clients? 
Yeah, so uh, there's a wide range, right? It could be anything from um, anxiety like we were talking about, right? Um, that's a classic performance block. Um, but but other more complex uh, performance blocks could be a relationship between player and coach, right? Um, and, um, you know, for example, a player who um, is being instructed to do certain things, doesn't understand their role on the team as well as they they want to but also doesn't feel comfortable bringing that up with the coach right so this relationship then becomes um you know strenuous for them and then it creates more anxiety because if you don't know what your role is when you step on the field right you there's that uncertainty so um you don't know whether you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong because you don't know what the expectation is so then that becomes a lot more complex to to work with an athlete, you know, especially if the athlete is is a client, the coach is not necessarily my client. So how can I empower that athlete to then fix the relationship with their coach? It's not always the easiest process, right? So um yeah, performance blocks I think can come in a in a variety of different ways, right? Um it could be an athlete for example that is coming back from an injury mm-hmm. and and psychologically has a very difficult time performing and sort of letting go of the injury that they've had because, you know, ACL tear players out for nine to 12 months, maybe doing their rehab and stuff. Now they come back. Doctor has deemed them healthy, safe to play. They've done all their rehab, but there's the trauma. When they step on the field, they're still not able to be 100% themselves because of a traumatic event that happened. Um, that can be another performance block. So how do you then, you know, work their confidence back up? And um, and that's where maybe you use a combination of those different skills that we talked about, mm-hmm. the visualizations, the self-talk, the deep breathing, right? All these different tools to be able to help that person um, get back to, to the best version of themselves. You've- how How does that development change from a younger player who might be around the age of, let's say, 10 to 15 years old versus an adult? Does that change at all? Or how would you approach that differently? Yeah, really good question. Um, I think think it certainly does change. um, And it it might change for lots of different reasons. Um, One might just be... um, the stage of their life and the psychological maturity that they have, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it also might have to do with, for example, level of play, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're younger and you're playing at, um, in games that are relatively lower stakes than when you're older, usually an athlete, you know, um, if if an athlete is 25, 30 years old, right, in that range. And they're, they're probably playing at a high level if they're seeking out a sports psychologist, right? They're not playing Sunday league. They're playing like serious, <laughs> serious stuff, right? There might be some Sunday league players. <laughs> Nico, Nico might be a future client. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> um, so if you've got a player like that versus a player who's in high school, the stakes are different. And so I think it's a lot easier to teach a player when they're young, when they're malleable, when they're maybe more open-minded to the world. Um, but also when the stakes are lower, um, when the stakes are really high, it can be tough because a player, you know, might try something and it doesn't work. 
And then they're closed off to sports psychology forever because, hey, I tried this one thing and it wasn't helpful for me. Or because they're older, more mature, more set in their ways, they're not as open to working with somebody. Um, but that's not always the case. Someone who's older may, may also just be, um, you know, more mature, more well-trained, more um, uh, more sure of themselves or certain parts of their um, athletic identity and what makes them who they are. Um, and so being in touch with themselves or, and having that practice and having spent all that time and effort makes them more motivated to do what you're asking them to do, right? So there's lots of different factors, but I do think there is a big difference in age. And I would say um, as much as possible, we should try to educate people when they're young um, and give them the tools. Because then when they are 25, they might not even realize if you if if you get a good youth coach, that coach can teach these tools without the kids even knowing that they have the tools, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, through through little little subtle ways in the training session, right? Um, and then when they're older and they're 25, they already have the tools. And when they're working with a specialist, now they're just being asked to call upon the tools that they already have versus trying to develop and train something completely new. Right? There's all these studies that show that visualizations are more effective when an athlete has done more training in visualization. So if I'm working with an athlete on visualizations for the first time, I, my first visualizations with them are not going to be about performance in the game. It's going to be about how did you get here today? Walk me through what happened from when you left your house to when you got here, just to play with their memory. Mm -hmm. Hey, visualize what turns you took if you drove here or however you got here. Visualize that, practice visualization, and then maybe walk me through, um, you know, your day yesterday, right? Um, and that's practice visualizing. Well, now we can start to get a little bit deeper, okay? Now walk me through uh, a situation when you were successful, now walk me through a situation when you felt that you made a big mistake, right? How could you fix that mistake, right? What would be the ideal outcome? Now visualize yourself doing it correctly over and over again. Well, now we've got some work. But to, in order to get to that point, we've had to have eight to 10 sessions, right? So it's mm -hmm. work. It's serious mental work. It's mental weightlifting, you know, yeah. just like when you go to the gym and train your muscles to be strong, you got to do that with your brain as well. And if you start with someone who's young and train up those skills so that they at least have some basic knowledge, then later on, it's so much easier to pick it up, right? 100%. Um, you, I mean, Mental health has been such a hot topic the last several years. Obviously, COVID made a huge impact on, I mean, us as a as a whole. Um, but with your players and coach and clients that you coach, what's a you've mentioned the toolbox a lot, but what's a tool that you've um, expressed to them that they can pick up and try and use to make sure that they're taking care of their mental health game? <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, I've I've mentioned a couple of them. Yeah. Um but one that I recommend often, and it's not for everybody, but mm -hmm. meditation, mm -hmm. um, because I think it's a, it's something that's easy to practice on your own. I say easy, relatively easy. <laughs> it's not that easy to sit and try to focus on one thing for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, I struggle sometimes in my own meditation practice. I try to do it every day, but there are periods where I'm doing it every day. There are periods where I'm not, right? So 
it, it is a challenge for sure. I'm not trying to say that that's easy. But what I do think is that you can spend relatively little time doing that. And it's time that you can spend on your own whenever you want. So um, I, I tell people to attach it to a daily habit that they already have. Um, so my favorite is uh, just waking up in the morning, uh, maybe turning the coffee on and then meditating while the coffee's going, right? Because it's a, a, a period of five minutes that I'm going to wait every day for that coffee to be done. Mm -hmm. So I'm attaching my meditation to that already existing behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but it also could, meditation could happen in so many different ways, right? It could be spending a minute outside every day, checking in with yourself. It could be um, after your workout, it's a great way to like decompress. You just mm -hmm. got done working really hard, sweating, really putting yourself out there. Yeah. And then now let's, let's relax and let's settle down a little bit at the end of the work. There's so many different ways, but you know, if you can reserve five minutes or less sometimes mm -hmm. on a daily basis, like meditation can be so huge to connecting with yourself and understanding what you're feeling in the moment. And in my personal experience, I won't speak for anybody else, but when I've done meditation, I have found it so much easier to, to understand my feelings in real time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm not meditating, oftentimes I understand what happened 10 minutes after the fact. Mm -hmm. But it, when I'm meditating, I can sort of have this clarity in the moment, um, which I would suggest everyone try it, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like that that's so applicable to anyone, whether they be an athlete or just, you know, your normal like Joe Schmo on the street, like meditation, because I feel like our society is so like head down, scrolling, always like ongoing. It is so hard for us to just stop and reserve a minute, five minutes just to like take mm -hmm. a step back and like really check in with yourself. So mm -hmm. I think that's an awesome, mm -hmm. awesome skill. So best case scenario for a lot of people, right, would be to at a young age, start to develop these skills, right? Work on good habits to put yourself in a, a better situation um, as you go through these experiences, right? Yeah. But what about people who are, are currently struggling right now? What are some of the signs that they need to kind of take a step back and maybe inquire with, with someone like yourself to, to get back on pace, like back on pace? Right. Mm -hmm. What are what are some of the warning signs to maybe look out for that? Hey, maybe we should I should evaluate myself, take a step back, and really start to focus on this type of development. Yeah, I think um, there's a couple different things that could happen. Usually, um, athletes will notice a certain dip in performance. Right? Um, if they if they know, hey, I used to be better than I am now, right? For whatever reason, I'm, I'm just not playing as well recently. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a big one to say, Hey, go, go, go talk to somebody, go work with somebody because they might be able to help get you out of that funk, mm -hmm. right? Whatever, whatever that may be. Um, uh, another one might be, um, you know, their emotions, understanding that, Hey, maybe my performance is still high, but emotionally I don't feel the same, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so maybe, you know, um, after missing a shot or losing a game, I get much more frustrated or angry than I did before. Right. Mm. Um, those emotions, they're normal, but, 
but the increase in intensity is what's not normal. And so when it gets to the point when those emotions, those feelings are affecting our well-being, our enjoyment, our satisfaction in the sport, then it becomes a problem, right? Because mm -hmm. if you do that repeatedly, you're creating this different relationship with the sport and potentially losing motivation and not wanting to play anymore because it's too painful to lose. It's too painful to miss a shot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so then it becomes an emotional attachment. And that's where I think it's dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where, hey, talk to somebody, go figure out how we can change that emotional relationship so that you can feel better when you play, not just perform better, but also feel better. Yeah. And and who should who should somebody talk to? Is it just a friend? Is it reaching out to a psychologist, like what are some steps that they can take to open the doors of communication? Because I think that's probably the hardest part for a lot of people is just starting the conversation. Yeah. So what's kind of like that first piece of conversation that you could recommend to somebody who is kind of going through a mental struggle? Like what's the first conversation just to kind of open that door? Yeah, I, I would probably say to talk with a coach, um, but I, I won't recommend that broadly across the board because sometimes the issue is with the coach, right? Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes the the relationship with the coach isn't quite one that you feel trusting enough to, to have that talk. Um, coaches, I, I recommend generally because they have experience, they understand, they may know somebody trained mm -hmm. in the field. Um, if the coach is not the right person, it could be a uh, uh, a manager, it could be um, a friend, it could be a parent. Um, I would always be more cautious of those people because they typically have less experience, right? They um, th and th they're typically, you know, like a friend, for example, um, a peer might respond differently than someone like a coach, right? So a peer might say, uh, you know, stop, you know. Stop complaining. Stop being that way. You're fine. Yeah. Right. Not a big deal, yeah. right? Downplay the seriousness of what you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, a manager, a parent may be less trained than a coach in the sport and not understand exactly what you're going through. Mm -hmm. um, so typically, I would say a, a coach would be a, a good starting point. Um, if not a coach, then a manager, a parent, a, a player or straight to a sports psychologist. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, mental coaches will will do like a first free session or something mm -hmm. like that. Someone who would be willing to listen and say, "Hey, like, I think this is worth pursuing. You should spend a little bit more time digging deeper into this because um, there's room for for you to to make some tweaks that might really help your experience." Yeah. Um, but I think in every case, it's going to be different, right? So it's hard for me to give one one general recommendation. Um, we have this joke in in my my master's program. We we had a joke where my professor would ask a question, um, like the questions you guys are asking me, and our answer was always, "It depends." <laughs> it's like psychology is like it depends because it depends on you, it depends yeah. on them, it depends on the situation, right? So yeah, that's. Yeah, <laughs> I know we have a lot of, um, you know, players and coaches and athletes, fans of all different kinds of sports that you know, hopefully are going to watch and listen to this episode. Um, 
And uh, when I was looking at your Instagram, you had a really uh, interesting post where you talked about the six mental skills, Mm -hmm. those of which being motivation, confidence, emotion regulation, uh, attentional focus, self-control, and then stress and anxiety management. And for someone that might be like just a fan of the game, you know, working their nine to five, what are some like practical steps they can do to improve their those six essential skills? Yeah. Um, uh, so we've talked about a, f- a few yeah. of them already. Um, so we, we talked about, for example, um, so if you take any of those six skills, you could potentially apply the different methods, the different tools mm-hmm. to help with that skill. Yep. So if I had to take one as an example, um, confidence, right? Um, so confidence could be increased by doing a visualization of successful performance, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That could help increase confidence. It could also help to use affirmations and self-talk, mm-hmm. um, which helps with the performance. Um, it also could help to do some deep breathing or meditation, which reduces anxiety mm-hmm. and thereby might also increase confidence because of the emotion that you're feeling going into competition. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one example. Um, what was another? Uh, give me another. We've got uh, emotion regulation. Yeah, emotion regulation. So, um, you know, meditation, I already talked about how that can help with um, emotion regulation. Um, but another thing might be self-talk, having a cue for when you feel yourself getting worked up emotionally or having emotions that are not serving your performance, then you can come up with a cue word that gets you um, back into the zone that you need to be to perform as best you can. Um, another one is is focus, right? Uh, another one that you mentioned there. Um, so focus, you, you might have uh, uh, cue words that help you focus on the right stimulus, right? Mm-hmm. So in a game, there might be so many things happening, right? There's your teammates are are in a formation. The opponents are doing something. Your coach it might be giving you instructions from the sideline. The fans might be yelling something. Um, so you might have so many different things going on. What is it that you need to focus on? Mm-hmm. Well, that might be something you want to work with with a sports psychologist and figure out, hey, in this moment of the game, this is what's important. I gave the example earlier of, Hey, when the goalkeeper plays out, we're pressing. That's the next moment of the game. That's what's important is working on our pressing shape because of the moment of the game. But when you're talking about um, a different moment of the game, you might need to be attending to something different. So your focus might need to be placed elsewhere. And so it's about coming up with um, tools, keywords, um, so that you're focusing on the right things. Yeah. What are some examples of some keywords? Um yeah, uh, it could be anything. So, um, so in self talk, there's kind of two two main types of self talk. There's motivational self talk and instructional self talk. Okay, um, and so um, those will look different, right? Um, uh, instructional self talk might be. Um, I had a coach that used to say, "Trap, plant, pass." Right. So for young kids learning the technique of receiving a ball and playing it as quickly as possible, trap, plant, pass is literally instructing and walking them through the steps of completing this task that you're asking them to do. Trap, plant, pass. That would be one example of some instructional self-talk. Motivational self-talk could be anything that um, either 
um, increases or decreases arousal motivation type things, right? So, um, you know, I I had a, a I coached a high school girls team one time um, that would say before the game they would say FSU, and I said like. FSU, Florida State University, like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that means. And so then I later learned that um, it was um, a few expletives, but uh, FSU, oh, F yeah. I'm tracking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that was their motivational They chose violence talk. that day. You know, they chose violence, exactly. <laughs> they chose so violence, the high school girls team. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so that's what that's what got them going. It's uh, always the high school girls team, right? Yeah, like, expect the unexpected, you know. <laughs> that was one of my favorite teams I, I ever coached. I, I took this group, and I think we had 10 players when I first took the team. Um, I say high school, but really it was a club, and they were high school age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I took this club team, and there were about 10 players on the team. I needed to build out the roster. Um, in the first few months of having the team, I struggled. I built, I got 12, 13 players, so we just had like two subs if we had everyone there. Yeah. And sometimes we wouldn't even have everyone there. We'd have to play down a player or whatever. We lost the first 10 games of the season. It was like bad, right? But I kept telling them, like, stick with it. I promise we're getting better. We're just not seeing the results yet, you know. And it, mm-hmm. and um, and so we worked, we worked, we worked. And it was tough. You know, talk, we were talking earlier about confidence. Man, mm-hmm. confidence was low at that time, right? And so I'm, I'm finding every little technique, every way to boost their confidence yeah. up. Um, and at this time, I hadn't gone to grad school yet, so I didn't have all the knowledge. All the tools. I, yeah, I had some tools, but <laughs> I was doing my best. Um, well, fast forward, like, I think a year, a year and a half. And, um, we actually, at the end of the season, we, we went 10 games unbeaten. So from 10 game, wow. losing 10 games wow. to 10 games unbeaten. So it was eight wins and two ties. Um, and there was one, one game in particular that stands out to me in my coaching career where it was a tournament game and we had won the first two group games and we were in the third group game. Mm-hmm. And um, we 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 could have lost that game, and we still would have moved on. Yeah. And um, but the girls were feeling it; they were in a complete flow. Yeah. It was awesome. And like ten minutes into the game, like I was standing up coaching, and I realized like they got it. Yeah. And I sat down and I let them do it completely. And that's that for I'm getting goosebumps thinking yeah. about it. That for me is like as a coach, when you feel accomplished, when you feel like you've done your work, because there's in- instruction, but at some point you want them to be self-sufficient. You don't want to tell them and joystick them on everything they do. You actually want to give them the tools to be able to do it themselves mm-hmm. and then step away. Mm-hmm. And so that for me was like the the best moment. Uh, Finally. Yeah. yeah. They, they understood. Yeah. Because <laughs> you had kind of given them that confidence to trust like what they know and, and their skill set and all the things that, you know, you guys had gone over and, and look at that. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Um, you mentioned right at the beginning of this interview that you're still fairly new to Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, what brought you out to the great state of Texas? Yeah. Um, so my my girlfriend's from San Antonio. Okay. Um, and her family is there. Um, and so her, her dad's been having some health issues. So <laughs> we came out here to be a little bit closer. Um, she also went to school um, in Austin. She went to UT. So okay. we've got a, a social scene here. So um, we're we're close enough to be able to go help out in San Antonio whenever we need. But yeah, relatively new to 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 Texas and the Texas soccer scene. And oh, yeah. um, 
And I think, you know, uh, you were, you were saying some cool things about how Austin, you know, well, Texas in general, there are very few division one programs because of the football and the title nine, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, schools don't have a men's soccer team. They'll have a women's, but not a men's. Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden it's like, bam, professional team pops up. And so there's there's attention on the professional team. Obviously, the, the professional team had the money to bring in players from from everywhere and create something really good, right? Year two did really well. Um, and so now you've got this big following and this big interest, but not a strong soccer infrastructure in this area. Like there's so much room for improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a relatively small city too. So I think there's there's... Um, a lot to do in the next few years to kind of create a really cool soccer scene here in Austin. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the influx of money and people here, there's a huge opportunity. Um, so I hope I hope the other people that you've been talking to on the podcast uh, feel the same way because there's there's some some synergy uh, mm -hmm. to the movement. I think there's a definite yeah. like buzz and excitement. I'm still fairly new. I moved here end of. 2021. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Nico and I met right before I moved out here. And yeah, seeing the just like excitement buzz around having a professional team, I mean, is huge. And then just seeing like soccer be truly like on the rise. And I mean, Nico had seen it for several years, obviously with his training and whatnot out here. And obviously, you know, Westlake and all the different cities and like mm -hmm. youth leagues out here. But um, for yourself, professionally, you know, you talk about all of those things. What are some of the opportunities in the professional realm that you see for yourself with all of this synergy that's going on in Austin? Yeah, I think there's there's lots of opportunity and it depends on on kind of the avenue um, that one wants to take, right? Mm -hmm. um, I've kind of been lucky enough to spend a lot of time in soccer as a player, as a coach in sports psychology. And so I maybe have some options of, of what to do. Um, I think sports psychology is sort of um, one of the next frontiers of soccer around the world, not mm -hmm. just here. I think anywhere you go, um, people are starting to explore the mental side of the game more and more. Um, you know, if you look at the four pillars of the game, right? Technical, tactical, physical, psychological, right? Technical and tactical, those are inherent in the game. People have been thinking about them forever. There's books about the history of, you know, tactics in Italy and, you know, technical training in Germany and all these different um, philosophies about how those things work. The next, the next kind of frontier that happened was in um, the physical side of the game. And, and now when you look at professional teams – um, not just soccer, but every sport, everyone's so far advanced in that because, mm -hmm. you know, within the past um, 20, 30 years, people have spent a lot of time thinking about how to optimize the body for performance. Mm -hmm. And so there are specific types of training for soccer players to get them to their best so that they're explosive so that they're, you know, um, they've changed the way that they thought about certain things. They used to think that the day before a game should be really light or even off to, to rest. Yeah. Now they've changed it and said two days before the game should be the lightest. But the day before the game, you actually need some like short, sharp stuff to get the muscles firing so that you can perform at your best. Um, but all of that came through years and years of research and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And now it's commonplace. Every single pro team has a, a, 
a team um, devoted to the physical performance of their players. And so it's just a matter of time now before you see the psychological aspect being treated the same way, right? That's the fourth pillar of the game that is relatively unaddressed compared to the other three. And so now you've got, at the top leagues, you've got teams, sports psychologists, and also, um, you know, sports psychologists maybe working with the first team, and then you've got maybe a team of sports psychologists working with the academy. Um, And I think more and more you're going to see that happen um, in all the different leagues at all the different levels, Um, or at least have, you know, um, one thing that's common, for example, is a coach um, who who has a strength and conditioning certification. Mm -hmm. So, they're a soccer coach and a strength and conditioning coach. So they have the knowledge of both and they can at least, even if it's a youth team that doesn't have the funding to have five coaches, they're only going to have two coaches, mm-hmm. one coach. Well, that coach maybe has the skills to be able to deliver on some strength and conditioning. Well, I hope the future is that the coaches then have the skills to also train the psychological aspects of the game. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. My mind is... It- as I think about like what you do, what you're able to provide, you know, the end of each year, you know, you're evaluating how your business was, how you were in your, you know, personal, professional life, new trends. How do you stay on top of new trends in your field in particular? Oh man, uh, great question. It's not easy, right? <laughs> There's always new stuff coming out and the, just the, the, the amount of information, um, is sometimes hard to sort through. Um, I would say that one of the ways that I stay up with it is talking with some of my friends from grad school Mm -hmm. um, because we're all sort of, we all studied sports psychology, but sports psychology is so broad, right? I had friends who were runners and climbers and bikers and nutritionists Mm -hmm. and worked in all different fields within sports psychology, right? Um, And so it's such a broad field. Um, and so I like to just, um, you know, reach out to some of my friends who are, you know, um, I've got a friend now who's working with some, um, some martial artists, some kickboxers, mm-hmm. um, some things like that. And so, um, just having the conversations about what, what sorts of things he's reading, what is mm-hmm. he learning from his experiences? Um, and I've got another great friend who's working with dancers, um, and, and, uh, with a group of dancers that, um, could potentially qualify to um, to go to world championships and things like that. So really high level dancers. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd love to have conversations with her about what is she learning from her athletes and and how is she working through it and what's the literature that she's been um, reading through recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, the 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 field is ever changing, and so I I don't ever claim to 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 know everything. You know, I think every day we're we're trying to learn more. So. The more I can I can keep up with my my colleagues, I think the better because we're always going to share that information with each other. Yeah. That was that was one of the things I enjoyed most about grad school is like that the that everyone sat down and wanted to to study it and and talk about it together. Um, everyone was truly interested in the subject matter and and um, and so that's where I think I learned the most is from other people. And that's like such a great pool to just pun intended pool from you know because you've got like people in so many different um, different areas and, you know, they study different things and they're working with different types of athletes. So to kind of like come together and be like, all right, what are you seeing here? What are you seeing there? And like, as you mentioned several times throughout the interview, you know, just everybody is different. Everybody ticks differently. So I think that that's super, super awesome that you have that, you know, group of people that you can pull, pull together. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So what what's next for you? Uh, what impact do you want to have out here in Austin for, for your business? Yeah. Um, so currently I'm, uh, I'm actually coaching a college team. Um, and the college team is actually not here in Austin. Um, it's, uh, it's up in Maine. Um, yeah, but I'm an assistant coach and, um, and so in the off season, my uh, main responsibility is to recruit. Um, and so, um, you know, during the season in the fall, obviously I'll be up there in Maine coaching the team. Um, but in the off season, while I'm here in Austin and, and able to, to help out here, um, I, I want to hopefully get more, um, Texans, uh, um, looks to go out East. Um, I think there's, um, the, the college system that we have in this country is unique, um, and it's special and it gives a lot of players opportunities to play at a really high level, right? Like in college, you're essentially treated as a professional. The only difference is that you also have to study <laughs> and you're but, not paid. Yeah. And yeah, well, some of them, <laughs> you know, you now are, you are, if you know. you, yeah, sorry, I'm old you, now. <laughs> if you get a scholarship, <laughs> man, it's pretty much like getting paid. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also the, the NIL, I suppose you could uh, make a little bit on top of it. You know, giving um, your autographs away. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, but I think I think I want to help kids. I want to help empower kids to get to the next level, whatever the next level may be, whether that's college or pro or whatever. So I've been working um, with uh, some friends of mine um, on, on helping players get those opportunities. Um, there's a, an academy that I've been working with that has a team in New York and a team in Spain um, and so when kids are looking for like a full-time soccer opportunity, um, I want to try to link them up with the best, um, situation for, for them as a player and educate them about what their options might be, because it breaks my heart when a talented player stops playing because they think that they don't have options to keep playing mm-hmm. because they think, Oh, no one recruited me. So uh, I'm not going to play anymore. Well, if you want to be recruited, you got to also do a little bit of work and put yourself out there to be recruited. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to play at the next level, you can do it. You just have to, you know, there there's a way of navigating the the you know, the the US soccer scene is complex, man. Yeah. Leagues are changing every year. They're just, you know, this new league arises and another one, you know, folds and then they change the acronym for that league or this league and then, you know, <laughs> that is true. it's crazy so. adding teams. Yeah. So it's not, it's not easy. Um, but someone, you know, like, like me or other coaches of my generation, we've seen all those changes happening and we can help, um, as much as we can guide those players to get to the right spot. Sometimes it's not always the best to put a player D one, if they're going to sit on the bench, uh, you know what I mean? They, they, they might not grow as much. Sometimes it's better to put them D two, D three, somewhere where they can actually see the field earlier on, grow into a leadership role, develop in a different way um, than they would. So it's about finding the right fit for each player. And that's that's what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Prime example. Yeah. Yeah. That kid. Where's he from? Small, small town in Georgia, but what a story. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it gives me like Rudy vibes. I feel like they need to make a movie on Stetson. <laughs> That's just my recommendation, but no one's asking me. Um, well, this has been such a great conversation. I feel um, just like I, like I just gained a wealth of knowledge from you. Um, so we here at the Train ATX podcast, we do a little, we like to close, wind down the podcast with a little rapid fire. Okay. So if you're down for it, it's just, we're just going to hit you with like some super hard hitting questions. <laughs> okay. So uh, first thing that kind of comes to mind, um, 
Just, okay. just say it. Okay. Uh, go to wellness hack. Wellness hack. Um, uh, uh, deep breathing. Favorite city you've ever lived in? New York. Me too. I live there too. <laughs> uh, are you a Netflix or a Hulu guy? Netflix. One food that you can't live without? Oh, avocado. Oh, solid. solid. <laughs> avocado toast? Oh, yeah. Have you found a good avocado, avocado toast everything. here? Oh, okay, wow, wow. Okay, we're going to need to talk after the pod. Um, favorite restaurant in Austin? Oh, man. I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I can't give you a good answer. I'll give answer. you some Rex Suerte for some fire oh, okay. guac. If okay. you're an avocado guy, fire guac. Okay. Also, ATX Cocina. Okay. Fire. I got to check those out. Yep. I'll, I'll hit you with those. Um, finish this sentence. When I grow up, I want to be... A soccer coach. <laughs> Favorite soccer player growing up? Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo. The different sides of Ronaldo. Um, favorite thing that you enjoy doing in Austin? Oh, man. Um, paddleboarding. Do you have a blow-up paddleboard? Or like yeah. a... Okay, that's not... Yeah. Inflatable. That what, that's what I heard was like the starter pack is you have to get the like inflate and you have to get the pump so that you don't have to like fool with pumping it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, what sport other than soccer do you enjoy playing? Uh, baseball, basketball. Okay, okay. Yeah. Awesome. I, I grew up doing it all. I wow, did, jack yeah. of all trades. I did, yeah. I mean, some of them were like I did for a year and I dropped them real quick. But I was just like one of those kids that just would follow a ball around all day, you know? <laughs> hey, you <laughs> know, it. just try, try it all. Um, last question. Favorite yeah. quote and or mantra? Oh, um, yeah. I got a tattoo here. Oh, we got a tattoo. Um, yeah. It says... Uh, it's in Portuguese. I'll, I'll translate it. Thank you. In Portuguese, it's Tudo vale a pena se a alma não é pequena, which is um, translates to everything is worthwhile if your soul isn't small. Uh, it's from a... That's amazing. <laughs> That's super I might dope. get that tatted on my forearm. That's super <laughs> It's from a Portuguese Probably not in poet. Portuguese, though. I probably put it in English. In English, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you guys have that bond now. Maybe you hey. do get it in Portuguese. I don't know. That's So where did you originally find that quote? It's a, it's a Portuguese poem. Um, and my dad um, read it to me when I was a kid. Um, and, and it stuck with me. But I think... The reason why it means so much to me um, is, I think, because I've been through so many difficult, I won't say bad, but difficult experiences in soccer. I mean, um, teams and coaches and um, experiences that I've had that haven't worked out like I wanted them to. Mm -hmm. But for me, they were always still worthwhile um, because I went in... with an attitude of, I want to learn, I want to get better, I want to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though there was a lot of pain associated with it, it was also so worth it um, to, to if you go at it with that attitude, I think you come out the other side a better person. Um, I think that's why it stuck with me. I mean, pun intended, but that's a great Love mindset it. as a psychologist and just as a person to have, you know, that like nothing that happens or that we do is pointless. You know, everything has meaning and kind of leads us to the next step in our journey and story. So that's, wow, I'm gonna have to find that quote. Maybe not a tattoo because I don't like needles, but you know. <laughs> it's not for everybody. <laughs> um, but no, uh, Nano, I so appreciate you chatting with us today. Um, just so great hearing about your story. I know that so many people are gonna just 
relate to you or relate to some of the tools that you've mentioned in terms of like anxiety and mental health. And like I said, even if they're not an athlete or, you know, a coach or around a sport of some kind, even if they're just like, you know, myself, I think Mm -hmm. that I've gained some new tools to put into my toolbox. So appreciate it. Um, Guys, be sure to tune into Spotify, YouTube, iTunes for the podcast, and then Nano, let our listeners know where they can find you. Yeah, um, you can find me on Instagram at GiulianoP111 um, and um, also on my website, um, Animo Sports Psychology. Um, and and the last thing I want to finish with is you had asked a great question before about if people are seeking sports psychology, if they, if they want to learn more about it, work with somebody, um, then reach out um, because I have tons of friends in the field. So um, I think everyone... Um, vibes differently with a different person to work with. So it might not be me. It might be one of my friends. Um, but I, I know lots of people and I would love to help anyone out. So awesome. feel free to reach out. Awesome. Yeah, we'll drop that in the show notes. And um, yeah, that's it. Thanks so much. And guys, we'll see you next time. 